0: Again, I think this morning, we're so glad that you're here, but this feels like one of those mornings where it's already been said. Jeff, such a wonderful job. What a what a blessing Jeff is, how he speaks from his heart to us. I mean, y'all, if y'all appreciate that, just give us a amen or something. I mean, he did awesome just using, showing us how scripture comes together and just does such an amazing thing. So this morning, I feel like I feel like we could say, well, that's enough, but I, I'm going to go with my theology. There's always more of God, and I don't want to deprive you all of my sermon this morning. So we are continuing this, uh, uh, this summer series in the book of Genesis. And as we've started to explore Genesis 1 through 11, this prologue of the Bible that sets us up for what's to come, they are going to get to a great passage, probably the most well-known passage maybe of all the Bible. It's the story that we use for kids in kids' bedrooms, the story of Noah and his cute little ark. Get him out here. There he is. Right? Know all about this guy. We know all about this guy. Right? Well, this morning, we're going to jump into this. And this story is unique. It's different. It's a different kind of story. It's usually one that we reserve for kids' classrooms, hallways, and kids' bedrooms. But this story, there's a lot more to it than just being a floating zoo. And our friend, who we don't know personally, but we'll call him our friend, and Christian comedian, Tim Hawkins, helps us with this idea of how Noah and the Ark isn't just for kids. Y'all watch Tim here. (laughs)
1: Come on, man. There's some beautiful stuff in the Bible. There's some stuff in there. you got to admit, it's not what we can call family friendly. Think about it. There's a reason you don't see some of those illustrations in the Precious Moments Bible. You don't see Cain and Abel in the Precious Moments. uh, Isn't that Precious? So I got never understand parents who will paint Noah's Ark on their kids, little kids' bedroom walls. It doesn't make sense. Noah's Ark's a great story, but it's just out there, man. It's like, Daddy, what are you doing? I'm painting Noah's Ark on your wall, sweetheart. My favorite story. You know where God sends a worldwide flood to kill every living thing? Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I love it, it's awesome. Hey, g- g- grab a brush and paint some screaming people on that rock for me, just to make it real. It's gonna be great. Look in the baby's room. I painted the stoning of Stephen. You're going to love that. <laughs> those birds No, those are locusts coming to kill you.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Tim. We appreciate that. But Tim has a point. If you were to read this story for the first time without any framework, and get into Noah in this epic story of the flood, which is the largest story in the prologue to Genesis. It goes from chapter five with Noah's birth to six, seven, eight, and then ends in the first half of chapter nine. It's this long story, but without any framework, it's bizarre. Without any understanding and context of what this story is about, it seems violent and difficult. A deluge that kills every living thing on earth. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at it. We're going to look at it a little bit different. Because this story does have a framework. Just like Genesis 1 and 2 is a certain genre of writing, so is Noah and the Ark. It's an ancient form of writing called flood narrative. Flood narrative was common in the ancient world. In fact, there's a lot of flood narratives, but flood narratives for us are probably most akin to what we would call urban legends. Now, don't hear me saying I don't think and believe in the historicity of the story of the flood. I'm not doubting the trueness of what happened, but an urban legend is unique in that it helps us to think about our world in a different way. And every town and village and city has urban legends. I grew up in the Oklahoma Panhandle, and we had an urban legend in Hooker, Oklahoma, about Christmas Eve and birds and birds singing to the dead in the trees on Christmas Eve at the cemetery. And they were there. I don't know why they were there, and they were really loud, but it was creepy. Now, Canadian has all kinds of urban legends, right? Whether it's Mary B. Isaacs haunting the middle school, right? And there's all these ridiculous stories of people seeing things at the middle school. Anybody had a sighting? I don't know, right? Or whether it's the glowing gravestone out at the cemetery, which is really just a streetlight reflection onto a shiny headstone, but we all wanna believe, woo! Or the one that I've heard stories on, I asked about this this week for people that grew up, uh, what's the, the bridge out by your place, Rick? The bridge, uh, Red Deer Bridge, or it's called Goatman's Bridge. And all the teenagers believe in this story of if you go and park your car in the middle of the bridge and put your keys on the car and then go back and sit in there. How many of y'all have done that in Canadian? Just show of hands, real quick. Come on. I, I, I know you have. Barry's done it. Barry, have you done it in a church, man? Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, these urban legends, they they, they help us get a sense of, of our world. They're passed down generation to generation. And in that way, they're similar to a flood narrative. Because a story like this that we're gonna get into today is passed down to give us a sense of meaning of who God is like. See, the ancient world was full of flood stories. All kinds of them. Most of them that even predate by writing period, Noah and the flood. That may bother you a little bit, but there's ancient writings about floods happening all over the world and in all different kinds of cultures. China has a flood story called the, the Epic of Gun Yu. I'm going to butcher these names, by the way. India has a story of Messiah, a man who saves plants and animals from a great waters that came on India Even as far north as Finland, there's an ancient story that goes back thousands of years about a man's name that I can't pronounce, but I'll give it a shot. Viman, whatever, (laughs) something with a V. And he heroically survived a flood. I thought this was interesting. This week I learned that even as far south as New Zealand, there's a story of a man named Ratupu who convinced the gods to flood the earth in order to destroy his enemies. But the most famous of these, outside of the biblical story of a flood in Noah, is a story from ancient Mesopotamia. It's a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I'm going to tell you this story just really fast. I am going to probably mess it up a little bit. You can read this online. You can get on Wikipedia if you want to do some follow-up on this. But the Epic of Gilgamesh is an ancient story of a man named Gilgamesh who walks through the world meeting different gods and he's this hero of old and he's trying to figure out meaning in life and he's looking for immortality and every god he meets is angry and vengeful and trying to get back at humans for their noise and their warring and their way that they act and the way that they behave and he meets this man along the way who has found the secret of immortality and it's just this little section in the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's on tablet number 11. There's, there's several tablets that this thing is written on. And this guy that he meets has this great name. It's Utnap Esteem. Great name. Parents that are pregnant out there, if you want a unique name, you know, that's kind of a deal right now. Well, I just want to pick a name that nobody else has. I just gave it to you. Utnap Esteem. Right? <laughs> Utnap Esteem. Perkins. That's great. Should have gone with that. Your kid won't be able to spell their name until they're 18, but that's cool, right? (laughs) Utnapashtim. Well, Utnapashtim has figured out how to trick the gods. Utnapashtim tells Gilgamesh how he has found immortality because he learned of the plans of the God of thunder. In the story, the God of thunder and lightning is super angry, he's very vengeful, and he's trying to kill all of humanity. It's mostly because he can't sleep because they're up at night and they're noisy. And he decides to flood the earth. Well, Utnapashtim learns of this plan and he builds this large round barge and he puts all the animals two by two on it and it saves humanity. It has so many parallels to the biblical account of Noah, except there's a difference. Utnapashtim is not righteous. He tricks the gods. And the gods are not good, they are evil. And Utnapishtim is not friendly. He tricks his neighbors into building the boat with him and then watches them in victory as they drown. It's a story of violence. Now it's important that we bring this up because this tells us something. If there's these ancient stories of floods, this gives us a framework for how to understand Genesis five, six, seven, eight, and nine. It reframes it from just a story that we take for granted or we treat it like a fun floating zoo, but when we dig deeper, we see that there's something going on. It tells us, for one, that if there's all these flood narratives all over the world, the flood did happen, right? That's very interesting. But even more important to our study is this. The author of the book of Genesis is Moses, and Moses is using the stories that people would have known, and probably his people would have surely known the story of Gilgamesh and Utnapishtim, and he's using these urban legends to tell a truer story, to tell a story about a god. The ep- epic of Gilgamesh is a story that I said was from Mesopotamia, and you know what another word for Mesopotamia is? Chaldea. And you know who's from Chaldea? Abraham. And you know who Moses is writing to? The descendants of Abraham. So it's all connected. And what Moses is trying to do is he's trying to write to a people who are once in slavery, who are the descendants of Abraham, who know stories about vengeful gods trying to kill humanity, and he's trying to say to them where we began a few weeks ago, this God, the true God, is different. He is totally different. So this is a framing story, a story to live by. It's remember, we started with the first week of this several, five weeks ago. Genesis 1 through 11 is gonna say, you've heard this about God, now let me tell you this. You've heard God is this way, now let me show you who God really is. So y'all ready for this? That's the framework we're going to go into. Thank you, Barry. We're going to be ready for this. This is a great story. But we're going to start with looking at how God is different. And we're going to dig deeper into this with three major areas today. Because when we look at how God is different in the story, the first thing we discover is that God is a God not looking to destroy. He is looking for the courageously righteous. Now, let me explain that, because somebody, and us included, we can be people who are right, but not necessarily righteous, right? You can be correct, but that doesn't mean you're Christ-like. And God in this story is looking for somebody who's not just right, but righteous. I've I've been Bad about sometimes just wanting to be right but not righteous. And we know what it's like to be around people who are correct but not loving, who are right but not humble. Those are not good friends usually, right? But God is looking for somebody who can put righteousness in action because righteousness in action is courage. So let's look at how Noah is described in this passage. Just a few verses, just real fast to go through, starting in Genesis 6. Nine and ten. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. So he's described there as righteous, right? And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now look at this: Genesis six twenty-two through and, and seven one. Noah did everything. So he's righteous. Well, how do we know he's righteous? He did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And then again in 7.5 it says, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded. I think there's a connection there. Why Why is Noah found righteous? Because he is courageously obedient. Because he's willing to do what was hard to do. He's a man who is setting himself apart through his obedience. Obedience often requires courage. I mean, think about the ridiculousness a little bit of this story. God comes to Noah and he's like, hey, Noah, I need to build you a boat. Noah's like, what's a boat? Right? And then God says, well, I'll show you. And Noah says, okay, I'll build it. When do you want to do it? Next weekend? And God's like, no, it'll take 120 years. Right? Right? And so, God, but Noah's just like, okay, and, 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 and it's going to rain, Noah, and, and Noah's like, what's well, rain? So up to this point, it hasn't rained on the earth. And God says, you're going to see, you're going to see a lot, right? And you're going to fill the boat with all kinds of animals, Noah, and Noah's like, all right, that's okay. People are going to think you're crazy, Noah, and Noah goes, I've got 120 years to get used to it. Let's go, right? That's his obedience, He is righteous because he's obedient. I think that challenges us. I want you all to think about your walk with Christ, your walk with your family, your life right now. Remember, you can be right without being righteous. And God's not looking for people who have right answers. He's looking for people who do things righteously. That is not holier than thou. It's not better than, it's obedient to the way of Jesus. So when was the last time? Just two quick questions with this. When was the last time you took a risk in the name of Jesus? Or, thinking forward, what's going to be the next thing that you say, it's time for me to push the boundaries of my comfort zone? because we don't grow without this, right? We don't grow without that comfort zone going, God, I want to be obedient to you, and this is scary, but I'm going to jump. I'm going to go. I'm going to be committed to this. I'm going to push this boundary. When's the last time? And what will be your next time? What would it look like if just three or four of us today said, you know what? It's time to take that next step. It's time for me to surround myself and ask for prayers to go. Let's go for the courageous thing, the obedient thing. We're no longer caring if we look crazy. We're ready to go, love, and live the life of Jesus. Dylan Burris turned me on to this story this last week about Pina. David, this is an Italian guy. I'm going to butcher his name too. I'm butchering names all today. There's a guy in World War II, a teenager in Milan, Italy, named Pino Lello. And in 1943, it just turned 17, and it was the same year that the British and the Allies started to relentlessly bomb Italy as part of the axis of power, right? So fearing for his family, Pino's grandpa sent Pino and his siblings to go live in a monastery near the border and near the Alps, the European Alps. At the time, Pino was actually kind of friendly to the Germans. He had seen them buy stuff from his family and all that. He had no ideas about the horrors that had been taking place in his country against Jewish Italians and against minorities. He knew nothing of their systematic slaughter of people groups and genocide. But staying at that monastery, he began to hear rumors, and he even saw some truths as he got to witness some of the people in the villages around this monastery dragged out and drowned in a lake. There at the monastery, he met a man named Father Ray, who was a devout man of God. And Pino was instantly drawn to this man's leadership. He was a 17-year-old kid. Father Ray began to uh, mentor Pino and bring him in and show him the way of Jesus. As the word spread about the atrocities of the German army and what was happening to Jewish people, Jewish people began to try to escape and became war refugees and would make their way to the monastery. And they were trying to get north to get into neutral Switzerland where they could escape the axis of evil and power that Hitler had brought on the earth. It was there that Father Ray said to Pino, Pino, you need to take these people across the border. You are young and you are able and you can do this. And so Pino began his own plan. He knew something about the Underground Railroad of the American Civil War and he decided to come up with something similar to that and he came up with an Underground Railroad to take Jewish refugees across the border to safety. 17 years old. And he didn't hesitate. He knew what he would risk. He knew that if he was caught, it would be his death. And for a year, a year straight, Pino saved the lives of countless numbers of Jewish people. Some people say it could have been in the thousands that he escorted as a 17-year-old teen across to safety. Maybe his courage was just simple teenage bravado. But maybe it was this. When asked later in life why he did this, he said, I did it because I had such love and respect for the best man of God I ever knew, Father Ray. I would do anything he asked me to do. Isn't that great? Maybe Noah just had such respect and love for God that he would do anything. God asked him to do. Righteousness doesn't require rightness. It requires courage to be obedient. The French, uh, a French philosopher named Francois somebody said said this. This quote is so good. He says, nothing is so contagious as example. Example. Nothing is so contagious as example. We never do any good or evil which does not produce its like. The righteous live by faith. Noah was righteous because he more than had faith, he lived faith. This is what God is looking for. Now let's go a little deeper into this. This story is a story about God. God is not like this. God is like something else. It's about seeing God as different. So when you read the flood narrative, you want to be looking for clues and things that are in the, book, in the chapters here. And in chapters seven and eight, there is this little clue for us. If you want to turn over there, you guys can follow along with this. But there's this run of numbers. They're not going to be on the screen other than to say this. In chapters seven and eight, you see these numbers repeated in this order. 7, 7, 40, 150, 150, 40, 7, 7. <laughs> okay? Now let me show you how that works in the text because this will see you come alive. Because in the middle of these numbers is something important about God. So in chapter 7, verse 4, God says, Noah, it's going to rain in seven days. In chapter 7, verse 10, the text says, after seven days, the flood began. In chapter 7, verse 17, it's going to tell us that the flood continued... And the rain continued for 40 days. So there's seven, seven, and 40. Then in chapter seven, verse 24, it says the waters from the flood rose for 150 days. Then we get to chapter eight. In chapter eight, three, the text says the waters receded for the same number of days that they rose, 150 days. Then in eight, verse six, Noah opens a window. This is, he's doing something with creation. He's letting light into the room again, Right? And it says that he opened that after 40 days. Then in 8.10, Noah sends out, he waits seven days, and then he sends out a dove. And then in 8.12, we have the final seven, where he sends out another dove, and it doesn't return because the worth, earth worth, the earth is ready to be re-inhabited. 7.7.40, 150, 150, Now, if you're like Jake... You're confusing me. All you need to know is this. In the middle of all those numbers, right in between the two 150s, is this verse, and it's the key to the whole story. But God remembered. So there's all this chaos and there's all this craziness, and the earth is 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 flooded and things are dying, even animals and plants, everything. But then there's this phrase, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him on the ark. And he sent, Genesis 1, guys, you ought to hear Genesis 1. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. The second thing this morning we need to lean into is God's not only looking for the courageously righteous, righteous, we can trust him because he's a God who always remembers God remembers. Now, in Hebrew, the word remember is not like us. In our word, we think of remember and we have to rifle through our head and think, okay, what was the third president of the United States? Or when was my cousin's birthday? Or when was my wedding anniversary for some of you? <laughs> you know, we rifle through our heads through facts. In Hebrew, this isn't God being absent-minded. This isn't God going, oh man, I forgot that I flooded the earth and oh yeah, I left Noah out there on a boat. Well, I better do something about it, right? That isn't what's going on. What's happening here is the word in Hebrew for remember means to get up and act. It means because of who you are, this is what you do. You remember your, this is what I'm made for. This is what my life is about. So what God does is he moves and he sends a wind over the waters, which I said just a moment ago should be familiar. How does creation start? In the beginning, right? The earth was formless and a void. The Tohu Vavohu was over the deep water. And what? And the spirit, the Ruach, or another word for Ruach is wind, was over, was hovering over. The waters. God remembers and he starts the process of recreating the earth through Noah. That's so good. God starts recreation with a wind. How does God remember us and start new creation in us as Christians? By calling you by his Holy Spirit to be led, to be the church, Guys, what we need to hear in this is a God who remembers is a God who's never done with us. We are all works in progress. This is the God who believes in us and is calling us to live according to his spirit, to put his new creation in us. But finally, I want you to see the closing scene of this narrative. We'll take a bigger chunk of scripture here and I want you to lean into One more thing about God. Genesis chapter nine, verses eight through 17. Then God said to Noah, so waters have receded. Noah's getting out of the boat. This is the covenant scene. God's kind of reforming his relationship. And he says to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow, and there's no Hebrew word for rainbow. The word here is just bow. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creature of every kind. Never again. Well, the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life. On the earth. Whew. Now, God loves to repeat a lot of words in that covenant. He says covenant a bunch of times. He says remember a bunch of times. He says rainbow or bow a number of times. But God is trying to get us to focus on covenant. Now, you need to know something here to really understand this. This is really cool. What God is doing here, in the language that this is written in, is an ancient covenant ceremony or an ancient covenant way called a suzerain vassal covenant. We don't take part in suzerain vassal covenants. You don't go buy a car in a suzerain vassal covenant because that's not the way the world works. But in the ancient world, this is how agreements and treaties and uh, relationships worked between two parties. It was called a suzerain vassal covenant. It worked like this. The suzerain is a powerful person in the party. The less powerful person in the covenant is called the vassal, and they are the one in the predicament. In our story, God's the suzerain, and Noah should be the vassal. In the ancient world, the vassal would come to a suzerain in order to survive. It may be, need that, may be that they need grain. And this king or this high authority or just somebody in town who has more money has something you need. And you go to them and you say, let's make a covenant. If you give me that grain, I will in turn do this for you. I will work for you for however many years. Jacob does a suzerain vassal covenant with his father-in-law when he wants his, his daughter, right? When he wants to get married. I will work for you for seven years I will do something for you to get this in return. That's a suzerain vassal covenant, okay? The suzerain then would demand that the debt had to be paid. And if that wasn't paid, if the vassal was not able to repay or do what they were supposed to do, they would be destroyed. Now, if you made a covenant with a suzerain, this is key, hear me here. The vassal... The vassal was the one that kept the sign of the covenant. You would write the covenant on a tablet or a rock, or you would would say, okay, this this cool-looking thing right here, I'm going to take it home. So that if the suzerain showed up at your house and had forgotten that they had a covenant and said, I'm here to knock this place down, you could say, whoa, 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 we've got a covenant. I want to show you the sign of the covenant. I want to show you the rock that we signed together. I want to show you whatever it is, this wooden thing we made, whatever that could be. That's how a suzerain vassal covenant worked. But what do you see in this passage? What do you see that's different about God? God's clearly supposed to be the suzerain. He's the one with power, amen? But he is also in this, the one who puts the sign in the clouds. Now, don't miss this little detail. This is so important. God makes the covenant. He remembers the covenant. And he keeps the covenant. He doesn't ask Noah to do anything. God says, I'm the suzerain, but I'm going to make the world better on your behalf. I will put my bow in the clouds. And many ancient people believe that the bow is actually supposed to represent a weapon. And a rainbow, if it's an actual bow, bow and arrow, which way does the arrow shoot? So God is saying, if you mess up the covenant, I'll take the punishment. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus on every page, church family, it's there. God is a God who not only remembers, he is a God who covers. Oh, it's so good. He's different. Compare that to our ancient flood stories that we talked about earlier. The gods of the ancient world want to destroy the earth, but God is a God who wants to redeem it. Utnapashtim had to trick people And the gods in order to survive. But in this story, God is looking for the righteous. He's going to save and use humanity to make sure creation moves on. He's going to cover it. He's going to provide the plans and the means and the way for it to happen. And he's going to cover both sides. He's going to put a bow in the cloud so that he will be our redeemer. Look at his change. Just two more things, two more passages really fast, both on the screen. Look at the change from the first of the story, near the beginning, and near the end of the story. Genesis 6, 5 says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. That's pretty bad, right? That's quite an extreme statement, right? All... Everything that we thought of as evil. And then at the end of the story, you get this phrase. Never again, God says, will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the heart, of the human heart, is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So at the beginning, God is regretting making humans, but at the end, God says, even though. Guys, grace upon grace upon grace is in the Old Testament. We just don't read it right. We miss it. Even though we're selfish, even though we are evil, even though we have inclinations in our heart that turn ourselves from God, even though we make a mess of things, God says, I will make the covenant, I will remember the covenant, and I will complete the covenant. I will give you my son if that's what it takes. He will redeem and he will make all things new. Y'all like that story? Yeah, it's good. It's <laughs> so good. This is who God is. I want to close with this. We'll be done. Somebody said I'd in our 20s and 30s class, which I'm not supposed to be in. I'm not 20 or 30. They said this morning, I didn't teach. Coleman Bentley did, and Coleman did a great job. And they said, wow, we got out early without Jake preaching. And I said, I'm going to make up for it in my sermon. (laughs) So I apologize if I'm doing that. But guys, I also want you to hear this. This story is our story. God looks at the earth in this story and goes, man, the whole earth is full of evil. And he covers it in water, and new creation springs up. When we realize our distance that we create between God and ourselves by our sin, God's answer to that is the same answer. It is, I will cover you In the blood of Jesus. And all that that's in you. That is not of me. Will be washed away. And when you raise out of those waters. That we call baptism. New creation starts in you. Holy Spirit blew over new creation in Genesis. In baptism. The Holy Spirit enters into us. And new creation begins. Anew. Now tell me baptism isn't important. It's in Genesis chapter 6. <laughs> isn't that cool? And we don't do it because we're de- we're, we demand it. We do it because we want God to work anew in us. Because we want Jesus. So if you need that today, we're here for you. God covers you up. If you need to start over today, if you need to start fresh, let's do it. We're ready. Let's go, as the teenagers say. Let's go, all right? And let's get in with this God who redeems and remembers and covers us. He is so good. Let's stand together and sing.